Welcome to The Leader's Notebook with Dr. Mark Rutland. Dr. Rutland is a world-renowned leadership expert. He is a New York Times best-selling author, and he has served as the president of two universities. The Leader's Notebook is brought to you by Global Servants. For more information about Global Servants, please visit our website, globalservants.org. Here is your host, Dr. Mark Rutland. You have your Bibles if you'll take those and turn to Acts chapter 8. Let me give you the backstory so the text itself will make sense. By Acts chapter 8, the first wave of persecution has hit the church in Jerusalem. Remember the the church, we talk about the, the church worldwide. We're only talking about a few thousand Jewish believers in one city, at least in one country, but mostly in one city, Jerusalem. And the first wave of persecution hits them and they begin to be scattered just to get out. The persecution also hits in Jerusalem. So one of the leaders of the church, a man named Philip, uh, he is often called Philip the Evangelist, but he was not ordained as Philip the Evangelist. He was ordained as a steward, as a deacon, if you will. So Philip is driven from Jerusalem to Samaria. And at Samaria, there he preaches, and he has a great revival. It says, and all the people with one accord gave heed to those things which Philip preached, seeing the signs and wonders that he did. And they believed. And there is this mass water baptism. Basically, the whole town is water baptized. And then the apostolic leadership that is, please take note, still at Jerusalem, the apostolic leadership, here's what has happened and this, this is where we begin. Acts chapter 8, 14 through 17. And when the apostles who were at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent unto them Peter and John, who when they were come down, prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Ghost. For as yet he had fallen upon none of them, only they were living as men and women baptized in the name of Jesus. In other words, water baptism. They'd had an evangelical experience. Now they wanted them to have a Pentecostal experience. And when Peter and John laid hands on them, there, then and there, they received the Holy Ghost. Now skip down to verse 25 and 26. And when they had testified and preached the word of the Lord, they, meaning the apostles, Peter and John, they returned to Jerusalem. I just want you to take note of that. They just went back to Jerusalem and preached the gospel in many of the villages of the Samaritans. But the angel of the Lord spoke unto Philip, saying, Arise and go toward the south unto the way that goeth down from Jerusalem unto Gaza, which is desert. Put your hands on your Bible, if you will, and let's pray together. Heavenly Father, with our hands upon the word and our hearts and minds as open as we know how to get them, we're asking you to do all the rest. Brush aside every barrier to divine communication. Rush in over the threshold of our souls. Deal with us in the inner person that when we leave here today, we will say one to another, surely the Lord has spoken unto us. In the mighty name, Jesus, the strong son of God, amen. The the first 10 chapters of the book of Acts could be subtitled, God trying to get the early church to obey. The last thing, think among the very last things that Jesus says before he leaves the earth, is 
taken up into heaven to be at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. What is one of the last things he says to the church? Go ye into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. It's just so simple. Go ye into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. And the apostles, it's like a, a Monty Python skit. They say, we hear exactly what you're saying. Go ye into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. And we know exactly what that means. Stay here in Jerusalem and don't talk to anybody that isn't Jewish. Sometimes I think that it, that God knows how we, that we make God feel like we do with our teenagers. Go clean up your room. Do you understand English? Go clean up your room. Yes, I understand you perfectly. Lie here on the couch until it's after dark and then leave with my friends. The whole, the whole concept of the first 10 chapters of Acts is that the church at Jerusalem is feeling this tension to stay where they are and this sense of tension go you into all the world. But what finally causes them to leave Jerusalem? Where are they meeting? In the temple. Not just in Jerusalem, in the temple, they're still clinging to the historical and experiential theological foundations of their Jewish faith. And they're still in the temple on Solomon's porch, the porch that runs, the portico that runs along the side of the outer courtyard. And they're, so when they have church, they're having church in the temple, in Jerusalem, on the porch. And God is saying, go ye into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. That tension exists in the first 10 chapters. What finally, God does everything in the world, signs, wonders, vision, Simon Peter's vision of the, on the rooftop in, in Jaffa, all of those things. But what finally drives them out of Jerusalem is actually persecution. When I was a kid, I, I live in the United States now. I live here in Georgia and I love it. I live in the United States, but I was actually not born in the United States. I was born in the Republic of Texas and... <laughs> It's rude to laugh at me. And um, my grandfather owned a small ranch in East Texas. A ranch is a little bit of an ostentatious title. It was just a, a large cattle farm. And he had a small house there with a little mm, concrete front porch. Not, not a veranda like you have on a southern Gothic mansion. Just a little concrete porch. And in the evenings, the old people would get on that porch and to get out from under the blazing East Texas sun... They would, in the cool of the evening, they'd drink iced coffee. And all of us kids, you know, little tykes, we would play around. And I can remember driving my tricycle up and down on, and I can hear, to this day, I can hear my grandfather's voice saying, I've got hundreds of acres here. Get off the porch. Have you ever noticed how your children want to, little children especially, want to play right around your feet? And you just, just once get on a really important phone call and perfectly normal children will go demon possessed. <laughs> I can hear my grandfather saying, get off the porch, get off the porch. And his volume, the intensity would rise. We usually had it pretty well measured and we knew when to jump off because my grandfather kept a broom that he leaned up behind the rocking chairs against. And when we'd see that big old hand reach for that broom, we'd start trying to dive off the porch. We usually made it, but sometimes we didn't. My grandfather would grab that broom and whichever kid was nearest, he'd just pop you base over apex out into the front yard. And I can still remember him standing there saying, now get off the porch. 
You could actually subtitle the first 10 chapters of the book of Acts, get off the porch. And what I want to do, I want to obey God before he uses whatever means is necessary to drive me off of the porch. I don't want to disobey him reluctantly up to the place where he has to unleash the dogs of persecution to drive me out into the world. Now, why won't we obey God? Why didn't the early apostolic community, why, why didn't they do what they were told in the very beginning, go ye into all the world? Why were they still in Jerusalem, in the temple, on the porch, 10 chapters later? Why? Well, the first reason is this, fear. They felt comfortable where they were. They felt safe. They knew that. They knew Jerusalem. They lived there. They knew the temple. It was traditional. It was their place. It was their little safe cocoon. There is something in all of us that feels an internal tension between the excitement of an adventure and the fear of an adventure. Something inside of us wants adventure. By the thumbprint of the Creator, God put an appetite for adventure in us, all of us. We may have bludgeoned it into insensibility because of fear, but it's there deep, deep down inside. I can prove it to you. Anybody here not see it on television or in a video or something? Anybody here ever actually do bungee jumping? Will you raise your hand? Just if you've ever actually done bungee jumping, it looks like about 10 or 12 people. Well, let me just say this to you. My mama didn't raise no fool. <laughs> Climb up on a tall tower, let a stranger tie a rope around your ankles and pay him to throw you off. What's up with that? The only thing I can think of is the adrenaline surge that must be yours when you watch the ground rushing up at you and you're praying to God Almighty that they measured that rope right. <laughs> I can bring it down to a little more basic level. Whoa, why do we go to scary movies? What is that about? Take our popcorn and our Coke and go sit in a dark theater and say, now, nah, come on, scare the liver out of me. Why? Because we get a little taste of a vicarious adventure, but we know nothing really bad is going to happen to us. The lion roars on the screen, but he's not coming out and eat us. But we like that. I believe that there is something in us that longs for adventure, but there is also something in us that wants to cling to the nice, safe cocoon. We just don't want to be pushed out. We want to stay in Jerusalem, whatever our Jerusalem is. We want to stay in the temple, whatever part of our life we've memorialized. We want to cling to the nice, safe porch, no matter how stridently we hear the Holy Spirit saying, get off the porch. But each adventure is different. Every one of us has a different adventure. God says to somebody, now, I want you to go next door to your next door neighbor, the people that are making you crazy, whose teenager keeps riding his motorcycle across your front lawn, and you think they probably are running a crack house in there. I know you hate them and you wish they were gone, but I want you to go next door and invite them to church with you and tell them that Jesus loves them. And you say, Lord, here am I, send him. Because they're, they're, we feel the risk. We, we can sense they might do something horrible. Reject us. Ooh. 
We, we have lived in a pretty tidy little cocoon in American Christianity. I, I, I'm going to say to you, I think, it's been, I think it's been pretty easy to be a Christian in America. And I, I have, a, have something I want to say to you this morning, but I don't want you to hear it. I'm neither a prophet nor the child of a prophet. So this is not a prophecy. If you hear it that way, you're not listening. But I am, however, an observer of human history. And what I sense in myself is that the darkness is descending. I think it may very well get darker and darker before the sun comes up. I think it may get more and more challenging, more and more difficult to be a Christian in America. I think there may be more and more punitive laws passed, more and more situations and circumstances where it is not a nice, easy, safe cocoon to be an American Christian. And I am not 100% sure that's the bad part. I think it may drive nice, safe, cozy Christians into the situation where they get out on the adventure, where God says, now, you wouldn't move, I will move you. Get off the porch. The problem is we don't want to let go of that nice, safe cocoon. I, I, I do. I'm not any different. When I was uh, the president of Southeastern University in Lakeland, Florida, I've been there 10 years. We had 10 and a half years. We had a fantastic ride. We built $65 million worth of buildings. We went from college status to university status. We went from less than 1,000 students to uh, more than 3,500 students. It was just growing, going, and blowing. At the end of 10 and a half years, I was like Rush Limbaugh. I could run that university with half my brain tied behind my back. It was just cozy, easy, just flowing. At that time, right at that moment, if you'll remember, I'm sure you do, there was a terrible scandal at Oral Roberts University. The faculty sued the president. The president resigned, and he left, and then there was all this financial collapse and all the rest of it. A headhunter, um, an executive search firm, called me and they said, the president at ORU has resigned and the board would like us to approach you about being the president. I said, no. <laughs> no. I said, I will not. He kept calling, calling, calling. Once he called me in a hotel in Jerusalem. I said, son, I don't know what time it is where you are, but I said, I'm in Jerusalem. And it, we just got tenser and tenser with each other. Finally, I said to him, don't call me again. Do not call me. And I said, I want you to take note of this. I will never, ever, ever be the president of Oral Roberts University. How old are you, son? 21. Look right up here at me. I'm going to help you. I don't know what your the theology is. Here's mine. God writes down everything that you say. And before you die, he will feed it to you. <laughs> Four months later, I was the president at Oral Roberts University. <laughs> but it was not an easy decision. It had been wrecked. It was in deep financial trouble. The buildings needed repairing. The enrollment had collapsed. And I was... <laughs> Safe. I, the porch at Southeastern was wonderful. Nobody was mad at me. Everything was great. 
One night, after all these calls kept going on, my wife, Allison, and I were sitting by the fireplace one night, and she said, are you beginning to worry that this Oral Roberts thing is from God? And I said, I sure am. I am concerned about it. And she said, what would keep us, if this is God, what would keep us from obeying? I said, it's just so easy here. My comfort zone was about the size of Wyoming. And then I said, I just don't want my comfort zone to dictate my destiny. God can give you a comfort zone if that's all you want. But if you want to get out on the cutting edge of the adventure, he says, come out further, come up higher, come closer. Let's go out off this porch you can catch little tiny fish in the surf, but you want to catch big fish, come out further. And of course, it's scary. I, all, these other, all these other guys, they give their testimonies. They're so bold. They're brave. I'm coming. I, I'm saying, I'm coming, God. See my face. But that's okay. Don't you see? That's okay. God knows exactly who we are. Now, that's the first reason that we are reluctant to obey God in getting off the porch is because simply because the porch is safe and nice and, and it's, our, it's our porch. Here's the funny thing. Even if it's difficult, even if it's a painful porch, it's our painful porch. We're used to, we can get used to a difficult, painful porch. So we, we just don't want to try something different. It may even look good. But we're, it's just our porch. So that's the first reason. The second reason is worse. The people at Jerusalem, the Jewish believers at Jerusalem, didn't want to go elsewhere because the Jews were all in Israel. They didn't want to go to the Gentiles. They didn't want to be elsewhere. They didn't want to be among them. They weren't Jewish. They didn't think Jewish. They didn't worship Jewish. They just didn't want to be among them. You know, the, the tribalism between the Jews and the Samaritans and the Samaritans were at least, they were cousins of the Jews. It was not like they were Romans or Greeks or something. They were cousins of the Jews and they were there geographically with them in, intermingled. But there was this tribalism. We just don't want to be with their kind. I, I believe that it is one of Satan's most dem, demonic strategies to hinder the gospel and to divide us from one another, to set us up in tribes, all kinds of tribes, not just racial tribes, but cultural tribes, political tribes. And that is the hallmark of the 21st century, of particularly this time right now. We are divided in tribes and we all peer at each other from our porch. Don't come on my porch. Oh, I don't want you on my porch. Wait, in all kinds of tribes. We get, look at this pandemic. We got tribes. Out of it, we divided up into the Mascovites. <laughs> against the Magasites. Vote, you don't vote in my tribe. You don't wear the, you don't have this tribe. You don't have that tribe. Racial tribes. Now listen to Dr. Mark. Some of you may not like this, but I ain't running for nothing in Georgia. If your fundamental self-identity 
arises from anything, anything, politics, culture, national frontier, race, if your self-identity arises from anything that supersedes your identity in Christ, it's a sin. It is satanic to separate us up into tribes, to, to keep us afraid of one another. We project onto other people in other tribes. They hate me. They don't like me. If I, if I deal with that tribe, no telling what they'll do. It separates us up. It makes us afraid. It makes us resistant. We can't even talk to the people next door about Jesus because we're not sure what tribe they're in. The, the current pandemic, COVID, younger people forget. That's not the first time we've ever dealt with anything like this. But back in the late 70s and the 80s, the frightening, terrifying pandemic, nobody knew what it meant, was AIDS. And the AIDS seemed to be rising in certain lifestyles, the gay community and all that. We weren't sure what that meant. It was, it was terrifying. And I was in my office. I pastored a megachurch in Orlando at that time in the early 1980s. Uh, let's see, the late 1980s. And hospital called me and said, Dr. Utland, we have a patient here. It's been very difficult to deal with and resistant and angry. And we, do, we, we can't, we've called several pastors. We can't get a pastor to come visit with him. Would you come? And I said, look, I was born at night, but I wasn't born last night. Is, is he in the AIDS ward? They said, yes, he's dying. He's, he's dying with AIDS. I said, I'll be there in an hour. Went down to the hospital and you know, nobody knew how to handle it all. Didn't know how you could contract it. They put you in a suit and shoes and gloves and a mask and the whole deal. I went in this room. There was a teenage boy, 19-year-old boy lying up in the bed in a pink nightgown holding a teddy bear. When I walked in the room, I said, I'm Mark Rutland. I'm the pastor of Calvary Church. And he just went like that. He said, I guess you've come to tell me Jesus hates queers. I said, No. I've come to tell you Jesus loves queers. He said, what? He said, well, I never thought I'd hear a preacher say that. I said, well, maybe you don't know enough preachers. I said, can we talk? He said, I would like to. I pulled a chair up by the bed. We talked probably an hour, just talked. The conversation drifted to Jesus, his goodness, his love, his compassion. And then finally, he began to tell me about his life. He said that since the time he was 14 until he was 19, he had hundreds of older adult male partners. He said, I don't even know the number and I don't know their names and I'm dying with what they gave me. He was angry and hurt. We began to talk about forgiveness and love and grace. And finally, I asked him, would you like to receive Christ as your savior? And he said, will, will he take me? The issue is not me receiving him. Will he receive me? Will he take me? I said, Absolutely. We prayed together. He received Christ as his savior. We talked more. We began to talk about life and eternity. And finally, I asked him, I said, look, are you clear on where you are physically? Has this hospital made it clear to you? He said, do you mean, do I know I'm dying? I said, yes. He said, I'll never get out of this bed. He said, I know I'm dying. I said, let's talk about what comes next. Die in this bed. What happens after this bed? 
We just begin to talk about heaven, how beautiful it would be, how wonderful, his healing, his new body, all of that. Finally, he said, can that be mine? I said, you've accepted Christ as your savior. It will be yours. You will go to sleep in this bed and wake up in glory. He looked at me and he said, get a nurse, get a nurse. And I thought he meant he was dying. I said, are you okay? He said, get a nurse. I said, what's the matter? He said, well, look at me. I don't want to die in a pink nightgown. <laughs> do you see, do you see, that's actually a sanctification statement. You see that, right? You get saved as you are. Sanctification doesn't change what happened in your past. Sanctification is the surrendering of everything that you have now. All he had was a pink nightgown and he changed it. That's sanctification. Let me tell you something else. This, this can be hard for people. Traditional evangelicals, it can be hard for them. That boy lived a monstrous, sinful life. He got saved hours before he died and he woke up in heaven with Jesus. If that tribe, if all the things that go with that tribe separate us from that tribe, how will we ever penetrate that? How can we ever get there? How can we talk to our next door neighbor if they look different, talk different, worship differently, or don't worship at all? You can hear that faint whisper, get off the porch. So what's the third reason? The first reason is fear of the adventure. The second reason is out and out tribalism. We just don't want to be with them. What's the third reason? It is we doubt God for the outcome. We're not sure what will happen. What we, if God would say to us, go next door to the crack house next door, witness to them. They're all going to fall on the floor and get saved. They'll be baptized in the Holy Ghost. You'll report it to Jensen Franklin. He's going to bring you up on the platform. You'll give a testimony. Next week, you'll be on the 700 Club and your book's going to sell in the hundreds of thousands. We would say, I'm ready. The problem is God says, go and do what I'm telling you to do. And you say, God, what's going to come of it? What's the outcome? What's going to come of it? What's the result? And God says, I'm not discussing this with you. <laughs> See, we, we want to obey God like our teenagers obey us. Go clean up your room. Okay. <laughs> I'm going but I want you to know you've ruined my life. <laughs> so here's this great revival. The whole city gets saved. The whole city gets baptized in the Holy Spirit. And the apostles, the, the, the apostles Peter and John, the next verse says, and they went back to Jerusalem. <laughs> but the angel of the Lord spoke to Philip. It was Philip that punctured that tribal balloon. And the angel of the Lord spoke to Philip and said, now go down the road from Jerusalem to Gaza, which is desert. <laughs> I don't want to be so blasphemous as to project my carnality onto the saints of the New Testament. 
But am I the only one? God gives you an entire city. You have a, a miracle of signs and wonders and salvations and water baptism and baptism in the Holy Ghost, a Pentecost, stomp down Holy Ghost Pentecostal revival, authenticated and endorsed by apostolic presence. I know what I would say. Okay, Lord, that takes care of Samaria. Where now? How about Athens? What about Rome? Rome, God, I'd like to just suggest Rome. Let's get Caesar saved. It'll change the course of human history. Where do you want me to go now? And God says, down the desert road into Gaza. Do you see what that means? It means that God's geography is not the same as yours. With God, the shortest distance between any two points is not necessarily a straight line. What you think is that God will lead you from city to bigger city to biggest city. And God says, I'll give you a revival. Great. Now what? A desert. And God doesn't make it easy for him. God doesn't tell him the outcome. God doesn't say, if you'll go down the road to desert, you're going to have a miracle. It's going to be recorded in the New Testament someday. Something great is going to happen. He just says, go down the road from Jerusalem to Gaza. And God makes it clear, which is desert? And Philip obeys. As he is walking down the road, an Ethiopian, a eunuch, comes in his chariot on the way home from Jerusalem back to Ethiopia. He's the chief financial officer for Candace, the queen of Ethiopia, Candace, however you say it, the, the queen of Ethiopia. He's riding along, and the Spirit of the Lord says to Philip, approach this chariot. And the next verse is instrumental in understanding Philip. It says, and he ran to the chariot. If we obey God reluctantly, like our teenagers obey us, God will take that. He'll take and use whatever we give him. But what he wants is for us to hear his slightest, faintest whisper and run to obey. Philip runs to the chariot and he climbs up in the chariot with this Ethiopian and he says, what are you reading? He says, the book of Isaiah, but I don't understand it. I don't know what to say. And it says, and beginning where he was, Philip began to talk to him about Jesus. You see what it is? This is a different tribe, a different race, a different nation, and Philip begins where he is. We can't ask everybody to get to where we are before we can talk about Jesus. It says, and beginning where he was, he talked to him about Jesus. After a while, the Ethiopian trusted in Christ for his Savior. He says, can I be baptized? There's some water right there. Can I be baptized? Philip says, if you've believed on the Lord Jesus for your, as your Savior, you can be baptized. He says, let's do it. They climb down from the chariot, get out in the little lake or pond or whatever it is, and Philip baptizes him. When they come out of the water, Philip is translated away, immediately just taken, and they said he is immediately found on a street corner in Azotus preaching. <laughs> I have a biblical and theological question that I have asked of some of the greatest scholars in the world, and they've never been able to answer it for me. And here it is. When he landed in Azotus, was he still wet? 
No, I mean, does translation dry you out? He came straight up out of a lake. He's standing on a street corner preaching. I can just imagine people walking by saying, we are really interested in what you're saying, but what happened to you? What does it all mean? It means that the miracle was at the end of a desert road. The miracle was at the end. God says, get off the porch. He takes him to Samaria, then down a desert road. He doesn't tell you what's going to be the result. He just says, keep pressing out, keep going further. The miracle of what God wants to do in your life and do through you in the lives of others is further down. God doesn't have to explain it to you. God is God and he expects to be obeyed and he expects us to run to the chariot. The bottom line of all this is this. What about you? What about you? I want you to notice in this story, Peter and John are not the heroes of this story. They're the apostles. When Philip is at Samaria, they're in Jerusalem. They follow him to Samaria. And then as soon as the revival sort of tables out, what do they do? They go back to Jerusalem. It is Philip who paves the way. It is Philip that is out on the edge. It's Philip that refuses to be hindered by tribalism. It's Philip that doesn't worry about the results. It's Philip that lives a life of obedience. And he was not ordained to be an evangelist. He was ordained to wait tables. He was a steward. He was a deacon whom God used. What does that mean? That means there is no Christian under the sound of my voice in this room or in any of our campuses or online who is, who is unable for God to use you. You just as you are. In the parking lot of a convenience store, when you're checking out of the grocery store and the, the clerk across the counter from you is rude to you. See, getting all mad. Why don't you say to her, I can tell you've had a bad day and I, I hate it for you. And I just want you to know two things. Jesus loves you. And when I get out to my car in the parking lot, I'm not offended with you. I understand you're struggling. When I get out to my car, I'm going to pray for you. But I want you to know Jesus loves you and God knows everything you're going through. We, we won't step out. We won't get out of our own little comfortable cocoon. We won't look past her tribe. We won't look past her, the color of her skin or the political button she wears to her lapel. We've got to get past all that stuff. And get and be willing to get out on the cutting edge, that desert road, because that's where the miracle is. And God has something for every single one of you. I'm telling you, even on the way home from church today, somebody somewhere that doesn't look like they ought to be in your life. And God will say, get off the porch. You've been listening to The Leader's Notebook with Dr. Mark Rutland. Be sure to subscribe, rate, and review today's podcast. You can follow Dr. Rutland on Twitter at Dr. Mark Rutland or visit his website, drmarkrutland.com. Join us next week for another episode of The Leader's Notebook.